Jazz. All right, well, I guess we're ready here. Welcome to Jazz Bastard Podcast number 14. I'm Pat. I'm hot. I'm hot. We know, Mike. We know. No, I mean, I'm hot. It's hot in here. I'm I, I'm Mike, and it's warm in my it's warm in the room where I podcast from. So it's yeah, we were still still waiting for uh, emails from listeners. We're hoping that some come through at some <laughs> point. But I've not checked Mike's uh, email box for a while. I assume it's just many requests for nude pictures, and uh, you know, no, do your I'm best. Hoping it's, I, I'm hoping it's Brad Meldow writing and saying the check is in the mail. Or I really wish I got my act <laughs> together to give him a bouquet. You know, I, we need to send him a bouquet from the bastard. Very uh, very. Pointed that I mean, we haven't heard from from Brad Meldow yet, so it, I'm sure it will happen. In his busy schedule, he's listening to mandolin music and us. I think that's probably what he's dividing his time between. I can't say I blame him. <laughs> Those are the two two areas you need to cover for complete delight. After that, everything else is just gravy. That's right. um, so today we're we're dealing with a kind of unusual topic: jazz albums that cover other jazz albums that go through either exactly track by track or at least spiritually hue pretty close to famous works of jazz past. So we're going to look at three of these and also talk about their inspirations. The ones up are Tom Varner, the the great French horn player's Second Communion from 2001, of course, responding to Don Cherry's Complete Communion from 65. Went Marcellus and the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra's A Love Supreme from 2005, uh, needless to say, covering John Coltrane's album of that same name from 64, and Greg Bendian's Interstellar Space Revisited from 1999. Well, Greg Bendian and Nels Klein, it's a, they're sort of an equal billing on that one. Absolutely, you're, you're absolutely right. Drummer Greg Bendian, uh, guitarist Nels Klein, you might know him from Wilco, or his own groups, including the Nels Klein Singers, group completely free of vocalists, and they're covering, of course, John Coltrane's Interstellar Space from 1967. A, a saxophone and drum duet album. So I'm kind of assuming we're going to make a delicious Coltrane sandwich with a cherry in the middle. <laughs> kind of hoping to get the space out of the way early and finish with the Love Supreme. Are you up for that, or do you want to get? Sure, to... that's okay. So we're beginning with an album that is not kind of one good thing about this is it forced me to listen to uh, Coltrane's Interstellar Space several times in a row. I just I listened to it once or twice, but it's not the kind of music that tends to draw me to it. And then uh, this very scronky, very out, very energized electric guitar and drum covering of some of the material from that album. And then they end with Lonnie's Lament just as kind of an extra track. But then, of course, to be honest, I couldn't tell you any of the melodies from the original, but I assume they're basing them on Mars, Venus, Saturn, that sort of thing. More or less the same motifs that, that Coltrane and Rashid Ali began with. So I guess to begin with, let me ask you your impressions of the original. Have you listened much to Interstellar Space, the original, back from 67? I think it may have been the last official release uh, from Coltrane before his death. I'm, I'm not sure about that. And then, of course, ever since then, Impulse has been kind of digging through the vaults and issuing more and more things. But I think that may have been the last official record he released in his lifetime. Have you listened to that much before? 
Uh, this... Yeah, actually, I, I, I had actually um, a handful of times, uh, more than once or twice, and probably like a lot of listeners who just sort of pick it up once and then put it down. You, it, it's real difficult to, to, to tell the cuts apart. You actually have to kind of attend to it with some regularity in order to begin to distinguish the tunes. So the tunes are all named after planets, right? Venus, Mars, Jupiter, right? But it's not, it's not uh, particularly clear that they have any strict relevance to what's going on in the songs themselves. So the titles seem to be kind of markers. I say that with a little bit of a caveat because Venus is a little bit softer uh, than the other cuts, but not so much so that it sounds like it's from another album or anything like that. But then, uh, so for this week, what I did was I listened to it again, but I, I made a habit actually, especially today, of listening to the Coltrane cuts followed by the Nels Klein cuts because I just wanted to see how closely he was following what Coltrane did. If there was, if he was, because when you listen to something like this, Coltrane's album is essentially free jazz, right? I mean, it's it's just energy and it doesn't seem to have any kind of melody. And so it would be interesting to see if Klein actually kind of followed Coltrane. And, and by God, he does, actually. I read something years ago. I read a biography of Coltrane. I don't know how many years ago this was. And one of the last chapters, this was a musicologist's biography of Coltrane. And one of the things that he was pointing out was that on interstellar space, um, Col- Coltrane is not playing randomly. That, in fact, the, the sheets of sound that he's laying down are his way of working through a whole series of scales or progressions that he's kind of got mapped out and that there's actually within each cut some fairly rigorous order even though to the casual listener it just sounds like Rashid Ali tearing it up and Coltrane tearing it up and you know the interplay between them you know it doesn't sound as if it's particularly structured or ordered but it turns out there is some sort of order and structure and if you and the more I listen to the the, the Coltrane, the more it seems to me that in particular the kind of rhythmic unit that he he builds on is like like triplets for the most part, right? Da 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 da. da. Sometimes they're longer bits and pieces, but he's just, he's he's playing sort of clusters of notes that are often sort of grouped in threes or sometimes slightly larger units. He's playing them pretty quickly, and uh, the only pauses you get in between these sort of staccato bursts of sound are are, are his taking a breath. There are very few, um, <laughs> and they're they're, they're short breaths. I mean, so this is this is an exercise. You have the sense that this is sort of physically and intellectually demanding and grueling, and it's demanding on the listener too. So as you listen to it, you really feel like you and Coltrane are right there hammering away at a wall, and by God, you're going to take it down brick by brick. I mean, there's just something ruthless and battering about the music. And in fact, the, the moments for me on Interstellar Space that kind of open up the most are the moments where he kind of steps back and pauses, and you and you hear Rashid Ali just play alone for a while, and it's like Coltrane is sort of gathering his strength in, on some of these pauses. I kind of like those moments when they occur on the album. So there's only, what, five, six cuts on here? There's a Mars variation, is that right? And then there's Venus, Jupiter, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Saturn. right? Yeah, yeah, I think, that maybe, is there a Leo? You're right, there's a Leo. For okay. Leo. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's it's a fairly compact work, yeah. And there is, Coltrane is never really free, right? In, in, right. in a couple of senses. You yes. know, there is a sense that he is, one, very methodical and rigorous in what he's doing and two that what he's searching for he never quite finds as he gets quote-unquote freer and freer 
and we've used this metaphor before. I mean, to me, years and years ago, I, I one of us came up with this comparing him to Ornette Coleman, the free jazz pioneer. And my sense always was that Coltrane was kind of bashing himself against this brick wall, trying to just break it down by sheer force to get from tonality to atonality or to get from structure to freedom. And you got the sense that Ornette just kind of opened the door and walked right through. I mean, it was just not a problem for him. There wasn't right. this angst. There wasn't this great planet-moving effort that had to be made. He just kind of played free. And for Coltrane, there's always something. He's a very, in certain ways, as spiritually is, earthbound yeah. soloist. You know, there's a sense of just being very much systematically grinding through in some of these later works these various harmonic possibilities and yeah. uh, a kind of relentlessness, as you said, there's not a lot of air in this music, except when Rashid's left on his own. And I actually, I could not analyze it. I could not, I, I would say that having, and I wish I'd been smart enough to do what you were doing in terms of the tracks. I tended to kind of listen to one or the other. And I would say that I could not tell you why. I think I like what Rashid's doing on the drums better than what Bendian's doing, mm. but it's, it's all spinal for me. I couldn't break down what it is that, that gives me... I mean, I, I guess in a sense that, that Rashid at some level seems freer and happier in this idiom, possibly than Coltrane, and, yeah. and in some ways uh, more natural and expressive and free in it than than Craig Bendian, who's a drummer on this remake. I, but again, completely subjective. I, I can't even, I guess in a sense, all judgments are subjective. I can't even analyze or explain or break down the reason uh, I seem to prefer one to the other. I just kind of know I do. And I, I, can uh, I do enjoy that. Yeah. I okay. agree with you. And I'll make a stab at it, which I think, I think that uh, Lee is working with a smaller kid. I just think he's got fewer resources than Bendian has. The Bendian has a bigger drum kit available to him and he's, he's taking advantage of what he, of what he has there. And he sounds busier in some ways. And, I like Bendian's playing a whole bunch on that album. Don't get me wrong, but Rashid Ali is like doing doing a lot with less. It seems to me, yeah. you know, you really hear him on the trap and on the cymbals, and you know, there aren't a lot of there. There isn't a lot of tom work here. He's just super busy between the cymbals and the snare, and he's getting a, he's getting a lot of mileage out of a little kit. It sounds to me. The other thing that kind of I guess a point you probably would make the same point later, but. In Coltrane's great quartet, it was really always kind of like a love story between him and Alvin Jones. Yeah. Which isn't to say that McCoy Tyner and Ron Carter aren't great players. Uh, well, Ron Garrison. Carter, sorry, thinking, sorry, yeah. Jimmy Garrison. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I was, I don't know. Where no, no, no. Uh, but it's not to say that Tyner and Garrison aren't great players. They are. But I always felt, and I think you probably feel this too, that that sort of the axis of energy especially later in the quartet is between, you know, Elvin Jones and John Coltrane, that that's the sort of love story that's being sort of, I call it love story, but that's the, that's the real tension, the real kind of angst in the, in, in the playing of that quartet. And there's only a couple places, I guess, where he and Jones did uh, drums and saxophone work, but uh, you have the sense that Coltrane was always headed here in a way. I mean, yeah. in a weird way that he ends here. This is one of the last studio recordings for him that, that, that he ends here. It seems kind of fitting in a way because he was always headed here in a way. And it's sort of when you pair away all the, when you pair away all the, the rhythm stuff, you know, when you, when you take away bass and, and piano, it's just the sheets of sound against percussion. It's, and whatever harmonic enjoyment is to be found here comes from his ruthless dissection of 
of scales and circles of scales as he sort of works through, does these extensive workouts on these songs. In a way, it's kind of a pure version of what he had been after earlier. But yeah, you're right. He never quite gets completely free. If he'd lived another 10 years, it'd be interesting to see where he'd end up. Well, and if anyone didn't need a bass player or a pianist... Right. It was Coltrane, right? I mean, he's doing right. so much harmonic information that really he'd almost be stepping on the toes of another harmony instrument. I've got a bias towards the linear players, the players that are quote unquote crafting melodies. It's just now I love I love me some some Coleman Hawkins, and I love me to death as a ballad player. Coltrane is amazing. He's yeah. got this amazing intensity and sincerity and beauty to what he's doing. His tone may not be as traditionally beautiful to some, but I think maybe he was, maybe, I can't remember who it was that said about Stan Getz. If we could all sound like Stan Getz, we goddamn well would. You know I mean? It's, <laughs> it's like Jesus Christ. He is amazing that way. And there's there's a lot. I mean, I, I always feel like that somewhere in terms of the the jazz fans love of Coltrane. I think as somebody who's deeply immersed and obsessed with the music and into it, I'm probably more lukewarm on train than a lot of people. I, I don't know that I'm by, I don't, I'm, I'm no means a train hater. You know, I'm probably a Justin Bieber song. It's going to be called train hater. I'm just thinking, you know, <laughs> train hater, like a Philip Larkin, though, to be honest, Larkin, this English poet who wrote extensively about jazz, I think both was angry with him or upset with him and obsessed with him. I'm just yes. weird. Yeah. As he moved jazz far, far away from the British idea that we were talking about last time, uh, as he, I think he was the one that coined the phrase rocking in pain between two chords, which sometimes I think can describe what's going on here. But yeah, there is a sense that Coltrane has become his own harmonic matrix, and he doesn't need other players. I love Rashid. I like this idea. There are moments of, of the greatness here. I, I do feel like that some of this, as I start to really focus in on it and, and break it down the best I can does seem a little bit like an exercise or does sometimes, you know, Coltrane, not so much with melodic motifs, but with harmonic ones. Sometimes I just feel like he's going through the 13 variations of yeah. this note sequence. And I don't know that for me, I find that as engaging or productive as other approaches or as, as trained in other phases of his own career. But but it's an amazing record. It's visceral. And I will say that both this and the cover album, there's, there's some rock albums that have been released with, with the little logo, Play It Loud. I think it's absolutely true, at least with my <laughs> engagement in this kind of music. That I came home early from work one day. I've been fighting some kind of weird illness. I finally had my blood taken today for about a month. I, I just I have these periods of lassitude, even from by my standards. I'm always kind of lazy. I'm always kind of run down. But even on, on that metric, I, I'm worse than usual. And so I came home from work about an hour earlier so I'd have enough energy for a rehearsal and just cranked this cover up, Interstellar Space Revisited. And that was my best time with that record because I think both these, you can't pretend this is going to be background. Nope. And you yeah. can't, you've got to listen to them as clearly, as high fidelity as you can get. Beatles music or whatever, it's meant to convey its basic information through cruddy two-inch speakers <laughs> in a car. I mean, it's cut that way. It's planned that way. And it, it is melodically powerful enough that you can get the basic and you're with the Beatles, for instance, you know all their tunes probably. And so you can fill in the missing bits and you're getting kind of the essence of it. Whereas avant-garde jazz is so much about pure sound that if you aren't listening to the sound clearly at the best reproduction you can afford, or you can track down or find, you're missing a lot more of it than you would be if you've got Fleetwood Mac on the back or you know whatever it is kind of murmuring in the background. You've got to turn it up. You've got to focus on it. And uh, true of this album, I still, I'm not a late period hater, 
though I've got to admit with great shame, never listened to In Japan, I still haven't listened to Ascension. I'm a bad person. I just haven't. <laughs> I just don't want to. Well, well it's still the quartet, so you know, it's got some... With a couple, yeah, uh, yeah. Pharaoh Sanders thrown in there. Yeah, Pharaoh Sanders. You know, yeah. and, I, you know, and I like some Alice Coltrane's music. I, I, I love Rashida. I mean, it's not that the... It's not the outness per se that's bothering me here. It is, I don't know, I, I know for me, in terms of avant-garde, I'm very much, if I had to, is it Ornette, is it Coltrane, as you go a tonal, or the school of Ornette or Coltrane, I, I gotta admit, I'm kind of school of Ornette. I'm kind of free bop, melodically oriented, etc. I, I think you're probably a little bit more open to this energy music than I am, is that... That's possible, yeah. Um, yeah. It's super demanding. I'll, I'll agree with you there. I mean, it's just, it's insistent. I, I keep going back to the stupid metaphor that we coined about cats and dogs. This is a dog. Uh, Coltrane, Coltrane himself is kind of a dog. He's insistent. He's like, listen, listen, no, listen. No, really, really, listen. It's like, he's like grabbing your shirt. And so, you know, he's got something really important to communicate to you. And he's trying to touch the infinite. And by God, he's going to make you sit up and listen. Yeah. This is not, this is not, this album doesn't seduce you. <laughs> there's no, there's maybe, no maybe. sense in which Coltrane is like trying to like yeah you know, he, he's trying to knock you down he's trying to he's trying to and in the words of the Dylan song he's knock knock knocking on heaven's door this right. little saxophone and by God he's gonna he's gonna break in and he's gonna take you with him and if you're not paying attention then you just get left behind it's worth pointing out I guess that that there I think we've talked about this before there's a, a church or there was a church in Why? San Francisco the the church of John Coltrane and it's when you listen to this album and some of the other late stuff, the really the, the more out stuff by Coltrane, you go, you can see why people have that, can have that, they can confect to him that way. That there's just, just this sort of intense, like wild, wild, holy man pursuit of the infinite that's taking place here. And, and he's just dragging you along with him as he's going to see the face of God through these cycles of scales that he's just going to tear up. There's just something intensely demanding about this music. And in a way, that's it's, it's almost charming uh, and it's demanding. I mean, there's nothing, there's 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 no hidden agenda here. There's no, it's, it's very right. honest. It's very honest music, you know, in a sense. Which very is earnest. true. Of, yeah. yeah, honest and earnest. It's very yeah. true of Coltrane. He's not, he's, he's not snarky or subtle. He's a kind of open guy uh, and his music this album kind of reflects that if if it was up to me uh, if you're going to listen to the late stuff by train I, I i would always go for the live stuff frankly some of that european train some of that stuff is really good it's free ish but not as free as this and the variations and the things that he's doing from night to night get kind of interesting when you hear multiple right. takes of him grappling with Bye Bye Blackbird or My Favorite Things for the 75th time. He actually keeps finding new things in it. He doesn't really play anything the same way. So uh, I'm a big fan. I mean, the Village Vanguard, uh, they finally yeah, released a four-disc set of all that yes. material. It's a little earlier in the career, but I, I do think that it really helps on those recordings, the mix of instruments occasionally... I can't remember if they bring in a bassoon or just something yeah. in the Eastern uniform. And of course, Eric Dolphy, a great gift when he's with Coltrane because Eric Dolphy has, he's more of the air. Yeah. He is more a player. And there are certain riffs that he gets into and certain motifs that I'll hear him do again and again. And occasionally he does get kind of down these cul-de-sacs that are tiring, but the variety he brings, bass, clarinet, flute, alto, and the approach he has, which again is just more bird-like, more free in that he's a, sense. He's a, he's a, he's a 
he's a sunnier personality. Yes. And, <laughs> Ooh. and you know, you, Coltrane is tortured. And that Dolph is a large is, subset. People sunnier you know, than Coltrane. Yeah. I know. But, I mean, yeah. Dolph is sunnier than a lot of people. He is. He is. No, it's, he's, it's, a very, he's a very bright, almost effervescent player in some ways. You yeah. know? And he's the perfect yin or yang to Coltrane's yin or yang. They go together really nicely. They bring out some of the best in each other. It's... Uh, it's fair to say Dolphy did that for a lot of tortured geniuses. You know what I mean? His work with Mingus is some of the best stuff Mingus does. <laughs> you know, So uh, he was a little bright ray of sunshine in many dark men's lives. There you so. go. And I, I guess we should move on. But I'm sure. just left with this image when you say it wasn't seducing. And I just thought what we really need are statistics on album, number of people laid to album. You know, you know <laughs> Avalon, hundreds of thousands, interstellar space seven and they were all yes. on mushrooms come on baby come on you know you you know, <laughs> rah, rah, you know. Yeah, come over here the waterbed is ready it's not an album that you're probably likely to get laid to so that's a that's a, that's a good new scale for, for <laughs> Actually, you know, albums, jazz albums you can get laid to. This is not if you get this is a jazz album to be sexually assaulted to me. God, that's disturbing. We should say something about Revisited then. Uh, Absolutely. Did you, did you like Revisited? What do you think of it? Well, you probably liked it better. I, I know. It's, you know, this is uh, Nels Klein. Again, we mentioned the guitarist who's got a long career on records, many albums on Cryptogramophone, which is a, a label I'm just really fond of. They just do yeah. a lot of fun stuff that's kind of often has electricity in it is maybe sometimes a little bit third streamy, but it's a, a label that I think, again, based in California, that has a lot of good adventures in music that isn't stridently avant-garde or yeah. doctrinarily atonal, but it certainly pushes things. He's He's got a brother who's a percussionist. They're both it's, a twi- it's his twin brother. Sorry, I'd forgotten that detail. Yeah. Alex Klein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In this case, he's playing with Greg Bendian on percussion, and they are doing Interstellar Space Revisited. In the, we've got to get electric guitar instead of tenor saxophone and one that he is i'd say more of a there's there's the whole jim hall charlie christian kenny burrell tradition of jazz guitarists who play very clean pure sounding lines on electric there are the effects pedal guys from the last generation john schofield bill frizzell pat metheny to some degree he is further towards the rock camp than those guys he's more extreme he's more comfortable with rock sounds rock effects distortion, feedback, you know, the, the kind of tools that obviously Jimi Hendrix kind of helped unlock in the late 60s and that have been available, but tend to more the provenance of rock guitarists. And so they're doing a covers of this. And there are, to me, again, it I just kind of have to brace myself. <laughs> you know, it, it is, it's, it, it's, it's very confrontational, aggressive music. There's a lot of distortion. It's not something that I really can get much from unless I'm just plopped down in front of the stereo or with the headphones on and doing nothing else. And even then, I'm sometimes like, you know, do you have to distort things quite so much, Nels? I mean, you know, there, there are passages of more or less pure noise, but mixed with a lot more subtle 
moments and passages and songs. I mean, Venus is the quieter where the interaction is better. To me, I'd say that the di- the biggest difference here is I don't know that, that Nels and Greg have quite got the thing going that mm. Coltrane and Ali do. I just don't feel like there's a symbiosis. I don't feel like them together, the sum is greater than the parts, but I, I couldn't, again, defend that position. I just feel it. Mm. The, the, the first thing maybe to say about the differences between these two is that Klein doesn't have to take pauses to breathe. Uh, <laughs> Wish he and would. That's, that's important. When you listen to, you should listen to him back to back, or not back to back, but cut to cut. So, you know, Jupiter, Jupiter, Mars, Mars. It's really interesting because Klein always starts out really, really faithful to the, it's, it's, it's striking. He, it, you know, he's playing the same sort of little triplet, little bursts of sound, and, little, and he has the same little pauses that Coltrane has initially. And then as typically as the cut gets further along he hits the effects pedal and then he starts doing he starts doing just squalls of sound and feedback and and almost sort of electronic bleeping sounds that aren't available to Coltrane except in the form of multiphonics and to be fair Coltrane doesn't do a lot of multiphonic stuff on interstellar space he's not that that actually requires you to sort of play longer notes than he typically does on interstellar space so Klein has available to him a kind of in some ways, larger sonic repertoire of tricks and tools in his kit than maybe Coltrane has, in part because he just doesn't have to breathe in between the notes. And like I said, he starts out initially on these cuts pretty faithful to the the, the speed and the pauses of Coltrane's playing, and then typically starts to kind of accelerate, and then you start losing any thread where he sounds exactly like Coltrane. And in a way, I, I kind of like that. I think it frees him up. To me, it's, it's, it's actually an inspired cover in the sense that, and this is something maybe we could talk about, we're talking about all the covers. A good cover is going to take the original and remind you of the original, but hopefully do something interesting and worthwhile enough to keep your attention and listening to it on its own behalf. And to cover something like interstellar space, one might actually say, what is there to cover? It's not like, it's not like anyone's walking around humming Jupiter as they walk down the street so that if you are going to cover that, you kind of almost have to do what Klein does, which is just take it out as a workout. I mean, and then take it as far as you can go, which is what he does on most of these cuts. And, and I find that kind of rewarding. I, I agree with you. I, I'm not, Bendian is a great player. I, I don't feel the interplay or the interlocking here quite as much as I did uh, with Coltrane and Ali. Not quite sure why that is. Maybe another listener would feel differently and they would say, oh man, Klein and Bendian are locked in. I don't quite feel that. Uh, I feel like it's Klein's show all the way and uh, that, that he really is working really hard and doing a lot of a lot of stuff here. The other thing I guess I want to mention, and you may know something about this, I think I read this somewhere, and you can confirm this. Uh, Klein is self-taught. Is that right? Oh, I don't know. I've not read much about his background. I, I, I know that he doesn't have a degree. Uh, I mean, I, he's he. I'm I'm. I think for the longest, I read somewhere that he's self-taught, and I, that prob- that maybe maybe I'm just channeling that or wanting that to be true. But if it is true, wow! Because in in this biography I was telling you about uh, the last. There's, there's about 10 pages where they actually show the notes that Coltrane plays on Mars or something. So it just covers page after page, you know, 16th notes everywhere. And 
Klein, if he's not trained, I'm I'm just amazed because he follows he followed that pattern really rigorously, at least initially, for an untrained player to, to pick up on that and do that is really amazing. And then he then he goes even farther out than Coltrane. He is absolutely a freer player than than Coltrane ever was for all kinds of reasons having to do with his own influences in rock and and his own the many the many the many fingers the many pies that he has fingers in in the jazz world he's in all kinds of groups and doing all kinds of stuff he's a much freer player than Coltrane ever got to be just started out at a freer place probably yeah he comes after the revolution and I think one thing that appealed to the mainstream jazz audiences there's a number of things that I think make Coltrane so important to so many people but one was surely that he was deeply immersed in the jazz tradition that he came from bebop he came from through hard bop he worked with some of the greats in the music and he himself in a sense i think it carries that with him throughout his career he never quite frees himself from it whereas klein is born into a generation where all this has been done uh, much more extreme musics than coltrane have been explored in terms of atonality or pure sound and he's very comfortable with and i absolutely i would not have wanted him to been more slavish i mean this was absolutely the only way he could have taken a valid approach to this to begin where coltrane begins in as much as you can tell where Coltrane begins and then right. done his own thing. Yeah, take I, it and, and I, you know, I love Klein. I think he's a, he's a fine musician. There are times when the more purely noise passages, I'm impressed. I realize how hard it is to pull some of those things off. He's thinking about them. I don't find a lot of gratification in them, but they are amazing what he's doing. And I think as a player, he also does an album of Andrew Hill stuff that I think yes. actually yes. works very well. Yeah. My biggest issue here, and, and of course, if you just hate over-driven over, uh, electric guitar, you don't like distortion, this is not going to work for you. If you don't like anything that's got anything to do with rock, pass it by. But my biggest issue really is just that he and, and Bendian don't seem to quite create the symbiosis. And that doesn't mean that Ali and, and Coltrane, really, they're not locked into a rhythm or something, but they are mentally... They're just, they're flowing together. They are somehow, as they express themselves, the sum is greater than the parts. And here, Bentian just seems oddly ineffective. It's like he's, he's hitting the drums and not quite getting through. And maybe the way he's recorded, I'm not sure. I mean, Ali by no means is a dominating presence. It's not like oh. the way he's engineered makes him sound overpowering or something. And he's certainly not a Elvin Jones with this amazing triplet tom feeling roaring and rolling through the whole thing. But just somehow it just seems to work better. He seems to, with in a sense, less motion, get more done. Whereas I feel like Bendian is, maybe it's more just a rock idiom, but he's going up and down the drum set and, and playing lots of flurries of notes, but they aren't touching me much. They aren't, and I, again, I don't I don't mean to be sandbagging on the guy. I think he's a fine musician and this is a fun project, but you kind of need a lot of magic, I think, to be happening between two players if it's a duet album. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's kind of, in a sense, the, the meaning of it. And really, in a sense, along with the motifs. That's what Interstellar Space is about, right? It's about Coltrane with a very great drummer finding a place together. It's about that meeting as much as it is the quote-unquote songs. So it's a neat album. I mean, I I, I like it. I really need to be in the right mental place, a little bit sick, a little bit under the weather, lying on the floor of my (laughs) living room with a thing cranked to nine. Ideal. But almost anything else, I'm probably going to reach for something more attuned uh, to martini shaking. It's just me, I guess. The other thing I was going to ask you is how do you, what do you make of the idea of covering a project like this 
I mean, for, for Coltrane, everything is about the quest, the search. You have this sense of, like, you know, uh, uh, someone on a journey trying to find something. And and Klein, I don't, I'm not possessed, or I don't feel like he's possessed with that same intensity of finding something or the, the search. And I wondered what you made of that. I mean, did you find that inauthentic somehow, or did it lessen your appreciation of Klein just because... Uh, I mean, would, would you agree with that, that he's not as sort of intensely... It doesn't feel like it's a quest or a search. It feels like it's kind of an appreciation and an extension of what Coltrane is doing with sound, but not, I don't feel the same intense, the same spiritual intensity, if you will, behind Klein that one always encounters in late Coltrane. Yeah, and that's, you know, <laughs> that might be a good thing for me. I'm not sure. Well, that's know. what I'm wondering. Yeah, I wondered how you responded to that. You've got God in my jazz. You've got jazz in my God. You know, it's like, <laughs> I don't know if they are two tastes taste great together. I kind of, yeah. Well, another way of putting this is, do we think that there is, it's very easy, I think, for, and we talked kind of about jazz being more a music of maturity. Rock is more about, and that doesn't mean you can't listen to it any time in your life, just like you can listen to rock any time in your life, but more about the, the, the bold primary color adolescent emotions, right, or the teenage emotions, the young person emotions. And there is a kind of histrionics to the very nature of the electric guitar, right? You can feel like pushing things too far. This is too much about masturbating on stage as opposed to the, the deep sincerity. And of course, for spiritual intensity, who is going to match Coltrane, right? I guess I, I never felt like that this was pure wankery or that, that right. Klein wasn't into it. And I do feel like maybe there wasn't that spiritual intensity, but Klein was, I think, very serious and very yeah. curious and devoted to the idea of his pursuit of pure sound. Uh, it was maybe from a more abstract point of view and less about trying to find God, but the things he was doing with his guitar didn't seem arbitrary or showy. They did seem truly as part of exploration, but you're right, there wasn't the spiritual burning intensity there. That said, there's probably a little more wider degree of movement available to him, and that's one thing that with Coltrane I'm always longing for. That's why I'm so happy to hear Coltrane with Adolfi. It's a little more variety, a little less monomania, a little less laser-like focus, where there are moments I just feel like he's got a cluster of seven notes, and I just I just want him to let them go for a minute. You know, he's just so intent. So yeah. at some level, the, you know, maybe the lack of extraordinary focus was a good thing for me. <laughs> I like that better, but I, I didn't feel like at the end that this was a project that was about self-indulgence or a kind of pointlessness, but... I, obviously interstellar space is more about the inspiration it provides for two players in ecstasy working together at the edges of what their instruments can do. I mean, that in a sense, it's more of a template for that than it is a set of famous songs. Right. And that's where I'm kind of judging it and where I'm kind of feeling like it's great to pick this project up again. All, all the ones we're going to talk about are love Supreme is kind of borderline are kind of avant-garde album. There, yeah. there's maybe something about that, 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 and of hmm. course there are other projects we could have looked at that we didn't, uh, that are less so, but but it, it's interesting that people will turn to that. I didn't feel like the project was inauthentic, but right. I'm not quite sure that they found that that bliss of the two together that mm-hmm. that would have made it more exciting than it was. It was good. I mean, I like it in as much as I'm, you know, I feel like maybe it's just because I don't know this music that well that I don't know that the, the stuff at its very best is something I'm going to be that excited about. So it may be a little harder for me to tell to make fine gradations between this project and the original. But I, I didn't feel like it was put on. I didn't feel like it was hysteronic or wankery, but I just wish that there had been a little bit more symbiosis. So, Okay.
if we're ready to move on. Yeah, absolutely. You were a little dubious. You said, I don't know, but Don Cherry's Complete Communion is the one I like to pull out of the stack. <laughs> and this, I, it's funny, I've got memories of this. I distinctly remember listening. You know, I used to get a lot of LPs cutouts because there was a capital record factory in the town I lived in. And then it became EMI and then it became nothing because that's what happened in the record industry. But for years and years, they'd have a yearly sale where they would put cutouts for sale. And of course, a lot of blue notes were cutouts. And so one of the many ones that various people brought back for me from those was Don Cherry's Complete Communion. And it's a quartet album from, I want to say 65? Yes. Yeah, thank you. And he's there with Gato. 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 Help es, me out. Es, es Espanol. Gato. Gato. Espanol for cat. Yes. Gato just, Barberi. There, there Gato. you go. See, you, you've got a little Spanish. I've got, I've barely got Barberi. English. Uh, I've yes. got a mixed relationship with saying any words at all with this broken mouth of mine. And Billy Higgins. No. No. Oh, I'm sorry. It's the other one. The other one. <laughs> Right, there's only two drummers in the avant-garde in the mid-60s, so well, it's there not are Billy only Higgins. only two. Ed Blackwell. There are only two it's drummers Ed Blackwell. that were with the classic Ornette Coleman quartet. I know. Uh, yes. That went on. Yes. And then it's Grimes right on bass. So, yes. yeah, I should, of course I should have remembered Blackwell because it's the amazing, if you follow the Ornette Coleman's original quartet's original incarnations, the early stuff they did for Atlantic, he works with Higgins, he works with Blackwell. And Blackwell is... is Got more of that New Orleans strut in him. He's he's more about very melodic playing on tightly tuned tom toms. They're both wonderful drummers. Blackwell for me is a little bit more fun. He's a little bit more out there. You can really he, he really stands out in a mix. He's very melodic, and uh, he's on this project that Don Cherry, after having worked in Ornette Coleman's classic quartet on mainly pocket cornet, had started making his own records on Blue Note, and so this is the very first one he releases. He's got Gato. He's got Grimes. I wonder, is it Ed Grimes? What's the guy's name? Uh, bass player. Uh, Henry. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Henry Grimes, a fantastic bass player who kind of dropped out of sight for like 30 years and then came back and sounds great now. It's just amazing. He was apparently put in cold storage somewhere for a few decades. Right for forgotten but not gone. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic player. And so they get this quartet together that is very much on the model of Ornette's yeah. free bop quartets. Cherry in this era is partial to suites, so each side of the album, which is 20 minutes long, is a suite of about four tunes that they move in and out of, and the four of them improvise together. I think it's a fairly delightful record, but my memories of listening to it as a college kid were, I really kind of like this stuff, but God, I wish God I would stop squealing. I, <laughs> everything else was fine with me, but it was a squeal, because really free bop in a sense, unless you're just very tied into harmonic rectitude, it's not all that hard to connect to if you've been into jazz, but again, the, the aspects of the energy music that were in Gatto's playing were not for me. I didn't like that so much. I learned to like the whole album better as I got older. So this is a model for the French horn player, Tom Varner's Second Communion. And I guess we should again begin with this, the, uh, the, the original here, of uh, this 40 minutes of a couple of suites. And what do you think of that listening to that again? I still I, I still don't feel like I have a good handle on this. I've listened to it. A, when I first got it, I listened to it a bunch of times and then put it away and then didn't think about it again until we were talking about doing this podcast. And so I've listened to it a lot this week and I still don't have a good handle on it any more than I don't have a handle on it any more than I have a handle on any of Don Cherry's music, who I like a lot. Actually, I have other things by him that I have have listened to more i would say and 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 like more and uh i my familiarity with him comes from of course the the early work with ornette coleman 
what struck me this week and listening to this a lot is yeah gatos can be irritating a little gato goes a long way um gato really is like he he i this is some um, awful but he reminds me a lot of coltrane you wanted to have a coltrane cherry sandwich but uh with gato you kind of have a little coltrane in your cherry um he sounds just he just always sounds a lot like Coltrane. Not just his tonality, a lot of his mannerisms on the horn. He's not the Titanic player that that Coltrane is. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but yeah. he's a good player. I, I like a lot of his stuff. But he always sounds to me like a latter day Coltrane. If there are if there are players who sound like earlier players, Wallace Roney, Miles Davis, then Gatto Barbieri sounds a lot like John Coltrane. And it doesn't matter what setting I hear him in, he reminds me of Coltrane. On his own, I have the uh, the two-disc Latino America set with Barbieri, which is lots of really lush, gorgeous percussion and beautiful keyboard music. And it's him like doing Coltrane riffs over all of it. It's like a bulldozer through the Amazon. It's just, you know, <laughs> it just always sounds the same to me, which is fine. I like him, but it's like, dude, can you just back off and can you play pretty once in a while? He just always has this kind of astringent quality to his playing, and that appears here. Having said that, he's paired really nicely with with Don Coltrane, who is not what you would call a tidy Don Cherry. He's not what you would call a tidy player. Don is always slurring notes and... I I don't want to say fluffing notes, but there's there's a lot of late miles in Don Cherry, except that Don Cherry is doing this before Late Miles came into existence. He's playing this sort of pointillistic, coloristic slurs and smears of color. Um, He sounds, I would imagine that in 1965, playing like this would have sounded like you were a sloppy, untutored player uh, in 65. And the fact is that Don Cherry is doing all of this deliberately. So all of the little smears of color, all of the little burps and and blurps that he he gets out of the horn are all deliberate i mean this is how he always sounds you know this is his mode and that's that that interplays really nicely i think with with gato on right. on, on this i enjoy their interplay i don't hear as much of the bass and I'm listening to an MP3, so that probably has a lot to do with it. So I don't hear as much of the bass in the mix that I have. Ed Blackwell comes through just fine, and, and he's terrific throughout. But uh, like I said, I still don't feel like I have a, a solid purchase on this, the way that I feel about, say, Multiculti or Art Deco. I'm still kind of coming to terms with this a little bit. I can't get over the year, you know, that this is 65, and this is his first album, his first leader date. It takes a lot of balls to make this as your first record for Blue Note in '65. Right. No one at Blue Note, it, it, no one at Blue Note in '65 is making stuff that sounds like this. I mean, just look at your collection. Go back and look at your '60. You know, if you ever reorganized your music collection by label and you looked at your Blue Notes from '65, yeah. who's doing stuff like? When do they sign Cecil? Cecil Taylor does a couple. I don't know when they do it yet. Yeah, he does well, three but records. But Cecil yeah. Early is not nearly the wild man that he is by like 1970. Yeah. 71 you know oh, he's pretty out there but it's a very different kind of out yeah Jumpin pumpkins is still pretty pretty in you know for, yeah. for cecil Taylor. yeah well know? he does it's unit structures and conquistador right on blue note and yeah it, it, it's hard to say i mean there are there's a small avant-garde wing you know even coleman hawkins coleman hawkins another coleman there's a lot of coleman's ornette coleman does a the empty foxhole there's one record on blue note and of course he does a duet album. Unfortunately, he's on cornet throughout with your favorite player <laughs> of all time, Jackie yes. McLean. And you know, but there there are just a few 
examples of this, and, and Cherry does three records. Symphony for Improvisers might be my favorite of the three. It's got a, a few more players on it and a little bit wider tonal palette because of that. Yeah. And then he does another one with Gatto called Where is Brooklyn? Yeah. And that one I've not gotten into as much. I don't know, maybe because I grew up with this record. I've had it for years. I mean, the motifs are very familiar to me, the little melodies. And his melodies are maybe slightly more folksy or accessible than Ornette's. And they just kind of weave in and out of, as I said, these 20-minute suites. You know, he'll, he'll yeah. play it. There'll be some improvising. You might hear the melody again. You might hear it at the end of a section. Then they move on to a different melody. And there's this kind of, as they go back and forth between the instruments, it has a little bit more of a folk feel to it. He did, in fact, a record an album called The Avant-Garde with Coltrane. And yeah, there, I've if you it. want to talk about yeah. air versus earth... Oh, this yeah. Weird sense of Coltrane lumbering into the Ornette Coleman quartet and just kind of sounding very out of place. I mean, oh, yeah. his avant garde was so different from Cherry's. Cherry also makes a couple of very odd albums with uh, Sonny Rollins. And, 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 that's, and that's saying something. Because yeah. Cherry, all of Cherry's albums are odd in certain ways. But there's this weird meeting of, of Rollins experimenting with outside stuff. And, of course, Rollins, very different from Coltrane, and we'll, we'll keep coming back to this. I mean, it's one of the great titanic struggles aesthetically in the music, right? But Rollins, full of subtext and full of irony and the occasional sarcastic flourish and the sense of being hard to pin down emotionally as opposed to the always straight-down-the-middle Coltrane where you you know you knew what he felt, you knew what he meant. So I, I've always found, to get back to Cherry, I, I think this is a fun record. I don't know if it's profound. It is in the context of Ornette's quartet work. It's at most a lateral step. You might argue in terms of the avant-garde, which has never been an agenda of mine, whether it's out enough or further out or whatever, but it might even be a step backwards in terms of a little bit more about these folky melodies that keep popping up. It's a little bit more grounded in the sense of in melodic material, maybe than the Ornette, even though Ornette's, as we talked about, a great composer. And you've got Gatto there, Gato, Gatto, whatever his name is, Gotti, who is not an Ornette Coleman, not a John Coltrane, but a fine player. And I think he does fine on it. You know, it, yeah. it's, it. It's one of the rare Blue Note avant-garde discs. In a sense, Cherry had made his name with, with Ornette, and they'd already gotten beaten up and threatened so many times that I'm sure by this, this moment, it was no longer scary for him to lay this kind of stuff down. And I do feel like the Blue Note stuff she was closely as anything I'm aware of in his kind of scattered and bizarre and eccentric discography to that Ornette model. And then he yeah. gets more into third world musics. He, in fact, makes a, a, a couple albums of duets with, I think, Blackwell again. Yes. Um, called Moot. Oh. And, and those, El Corazon as well is another yeah, duet with the, Blackwell. Those, yeah. those are a lot of fun. But yeah, yeah, they he's are. He's always been a coloristic player. I mean, he's yep. never, I think you're right in the sense that it's the way he wants to play. I don't know that yeah. every effect is pre-planned. He's not, he's not like a Wenton Marcellus who when he smears a note, you feel like that was smear number 32 that went exactly <laughs> 15 right. millibits of a pitch beneath the regular pitch and that he reproduced exactly like a robot every time he did it. He's kind of a loosey-goosey guy and he is very yep. much, he is just a freer player in so many ways than a culture. And that's not a good thing or a bad thing. He's just... He's more of the air. He's more just kind of letting things flow and come to him and willing to kind of blurt and blat and kind of throw some paint up on the canvas and see what he thinks about it. He, just less concerned, less earnest, less boring down. He's not a, he's not a lickety split player. No. He's going <laughs> to run through tons of notes. You're not going to hear that from him. And I like the word you used earlier. You called him a folksy player. I think that's 
dead on. And that actually carries through to some of the third world stuff that he'll do later. He is a kind of folksy. There's almost kind of a, a folk music. And I want to be careful how I use this term because I don't want you to think banjos and Pete Seeger and the Weavers. But there's 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 a kind of folksiness to what he does, to what he gets up to on most of his albums. That's certainly true here in his very first leader date. Uh, there's, uh, there's, uh, there's almost a kind of... I want to be careful, but it's almost like a comical, a comical quality or uh, there's a, just a sense of lightheartedness and enjoyment here. Also in the dialogue, because Barbieri can be a very intense guy, but you don't feel that here. You don't feel like this is a fraud, angst-ridden no. exchange. The title is Complete Communion, and you have the sense... I don't know if the title was supposed to refer to communion in, in some sort of religious sense. My sense is it's communion. These four guys are are playing and dialoguing together in a very sort of open, unhierarchical, lateral way, and yeah. that the communion is complete in that sense. And a lot of that is is owed to Cherry's style, which is just friendly, engaging, open. I wouldn't call him necessarily a warm player, but uh, the, those those little smears that he gets up to, the little the little very short runs that he'll do, just are you know engaging. They sort of draw you in, and he does play with space. He leaves openness between himself and the other players that that is also kind of a relief for the listener, yeah. as compared to say Interstellar Space, which is just there's no there's no, <laughs> there's no let God up. space is there. There is no space right. in Interstellar Space. There's, Interstellar full no let up. And there's a lot of let up here. There's a lot of places for you to sort of pause and gather your wits and, and think about what you're hearing. I wish he would have broken up. I'm not I'm not a fan here, I guess, of the complete sweets thing. Mm-hmm. I get it. I understand it. I kind of wish I, I don't I, I don't know that much is gained by I'm not sure I'm I'm not sure I, I, it'll take a few more listens, but I'm not convinced that just having four cuts each side would have would have killed him and would have broken up the flow. I, I don't I, I don't feel like there's a massive net gain by tying these all together into 20 yeah. minute suites. I'm not I'm not convinced yet of that. Yeah, uh, it, he does that live as well. There's a couple of uh, pretty neat live recordings that have been released recently that are a lot of fun from about the same era. And uh, yeah, it's hard to say it's, it's reminiscent of Miles Davis uh, about the same time who was increasingly turning his sets into sequences of songs that really weren't broken up, started and stopped in a formal way, but kind of flowed into one another. It doesn't bother me. I mean, right. you're right that I don't feel like there is some overarching structure. Absolutely, there are beads on a string, but the fact they don't, you know, they kind of morph between them instead of stopping and starting. I don't know that anything's gained or lost. Just, yeah. But yeah, it's a fun record. It is it, maybe it's a little bit of a holy fool kind of vibe. I don't know that it is quite, yeah. not quite sunny. You know, there is maybe a little bit more. It's, it's not quite as you said. He's not quite warm in, in the more traditional sense, but there is just something about. If there's a spirituality there, it's a very different, as I said, the kind of a holy fool model. It's not... Yeah. So it's low-key, it's not fraught, it's not... Not the agonized pilgrim, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who finds he's out... The, <laughs> he's the happy pilgrim on the way to there Canterbury. Close <laughs> to Coltrane, he's like, what is between the stars? A whole fucking lot of notes. That's what's between the stars. <laughs> there is no space. As there many notes only, as I can cram there are in. There only arpeggios from star to star. That's right, there are arpeggios, ladders to God, as I like to call them. Thank you. 
So, you know, another oddity is if we move from, here comes the segue, from uh, Cherry to Varner, is that Cherry favored this pocket cornet, this tiny yeah. little instrument that I can only assume is a harder thing to play properly than a real cornet or a real trumpet. And I don't quite know. There's this period there where he's with Ornette Coleman's playing this striking white plastic alto saxophone. Right. And <laughs> Cherry's got this tiny toy cornet with him. And I think one of my all-time favorite album covers is This Is Our Music, right. where there's a strip in the middle of it, and the four of them are looking just so incredible combination of nerd and badass. You know, they're just, <laughs> it's so fucking hip. I just love, I mean, I just would kill for a huge poster of that. It's just so attitudinal at the same time, you know, it, with Charlie Hayden with his hair sh- shaved short and just kind of looking shades on more or less, kind of looking off in the distance. And it's just, it's confrontational, but it's not, it's hip, but it's nerdy. It's so awesome. And, for whatever reason, this album motivates Tom Varner, who is kind of not the soul, but one of the few known practitioners of the jazz French horn. Well, let's let's list them. Let's list them. Julius Watkins. And he's really of a different generation. And I, I think we're done. <laughs> I think you know, we're done. <laughs> Gunther blew a little bit on uh, Birth of the Cool there. Gunther Schuler, the well-known critic. But yeah. yeah we're talking about guys who like appeared on album after album. It's Julius Watkins and Tom Varner. And that's it. That's You're it. done. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're pretty much finished here. You can all go home. And there is a reason for that, though. Yep. I got to say, with Varner, his technique is such oh, yeah. that... I don't feel, at times with Watkins, I really did, and as I said, I think I mentioned before on this cast, I got this European reissue of these various records that, that Julius Watkins had made with Charlie Rouse. They had a small ensemble going for a while there, and the, one once the record company made him cover songs from a musical, and there's a <laughs> hot girl with a red dress on and another one, they're trying to sex it up as much as they can. It's like, let's make the French horn, tenor saxophone jazz group sexy. It's like, yeah, you keep working on that. So they, they had a two or three records worth of, of stuff they put out. And it's amazing what he does. And it's inspiring what he does. But you do feel like the instrument itself is a barrier to what he's trying to get up to. Mm-hmm. Varner, I don't feel that. Nope. At the same time, it's like if you'd asked me, was that a trombone or not? Exactly. Not, and that's the thing. is, At some level, the hunting horn plagency of the French horn, I mean, what is the French horn known for? It's known for a kind of tonality. It's known for being a pain in the fucking ass to keep in tune. Uh, you have to stick your fist into it. It's a weird, demanding instrument that has this very distinctive tone that comes from, it was originally a hunting horn, right, before the vowels were on it. And it can play some really gorgeous passages in its very special voice that it has. And I feel like Varner's completely overcome the technical limitations. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But he, I feel like he's also kind of lost the French hornness of it. I mean, if I listen to it, yep. it does sound pretty close to trombone. So it's amazing what he's doing. But why does he just learn? You know, it's, it's weird. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I couldn't agree more about we'll talk about the, the album. In a second. I couldn't agree more about Varner's playing. Uh, he is a he's a fucking virtuoso. He's amazing. And this there are cuts here. You cannot tell this apart from a trombone. I mean, I defy. Yeah. You know, it would be a great blindfold listen listeners test the next time they uh, 
drag Ray Anderson over to Downbeat and give him a blindfold test to play some Tom Varner and ask him, what is this? (laughs) (laughs) Because he sounds like a damn trombone. And I'm not talking talking like a a valve trombone, like Bob Brookmeyer. I mean, he sounds like a trombone, like a slide trombone. It's amazing. The the French horn, one of the other things it's known for, all the things you said are true, the the, the hand up the, the bell and trying to keep it in tune. It's also famously difficult for uh, stops and starts to not have little burps and it's one of the reasons why when you when you hear french horn in orchestras and they play something beautiful you want to stand up and cheer because it's really really fucking hard to do that and if you've ever listened to an amateur orchestra you want to slit your wrists when you hear a little group of french horns <laughs> burping their way through some lovely passage it's really hard to get them to it's it's hard to sort of start and stop the note crisply it's really difficult it's one of the hard things about french horn and you just have no sense of that with varner he sometimes he sounds like a flugelhorn almost yeah um and he's really fast i mean he can play really quickly so yeah it's it's that that alone is just come for the avant-garde stay for the amazing french horn player who sounds like a trombone slash flugelhorn just that alone makes him interesting and i think we've both listened to what three or four of his albums yeah i mean and he is a fine recording artist there is a sense a little bit it's like i wanted to build ships and bottles but i thought i'd do it while water skiing (laughs) <laughs> and, and I'm like, it, it is amazing because I, I looked his web page up and I, I got to say that unless you're a really rich jazz musician, it seems like the personal web pages are just monuments of sadness in terms of design, not the, the material <laughs> on it, but you just look at it and your heart kind of sinks down, refreshed three years ago. And it's like, oh, social media, what hast thou wrought? Maybe he's got a cool Facebook page. I, I don't know. But yeah, they, they do seem like you can almost see the virtual spider webs gathering. But yeah, he said that he occurred to him early on that he wanted to be a jazz French horn player. It's I wanted to build, you know, ships and bottles while water skiing. And he did it. And it's like, OK, you did it. I mean, you really did. And he's not only that, he I think he's a good composer. I think he's a fine conceptualist. I am very fond of his album Swimming. There's another one I've got that he's as an artist, as somebody to listen to in the kind of modern idiom, somebody who's not nothing about nothing but scronk, but somebody who is certainly using a expanded vocabulary, who's willing to go out to the atonal wilds at times, but he's got a good ear for compelling melodies, etc. He's quite good. I mean, I think he's a, he's yeah. a, he's a good player, but there is this weird sense of why. <laughs> I, and nothing, I love the sound of the French horn. I mean, I, I do, and I think it's, it's an amazing instrument. It just, it just feels like he kind of, and I'm going to do it with one hand tied behind my back, blindfolded, and he does it, and it's amazing. But you almost wonder, and if you learn to play trombone instead, he might be like the kick-assiest trombone player ever. Not well, Ray Anderson right. a lot. But, yeah. But, but yeah, and it will, yeah, someday we'll get to Brother Ray. But but yeah, it, it it is. You almost feel like he's kind of set himself this task that was unnecessarily difficult. But but for whatever reason, he does. he's somebody to look out for. He's somebody that... I don't think I've heard an album by him that I did not like, did yeah, not enjoy. I agree. I agree. But one thing he sets out to do, and this is not Interstellar Space Revisited, is pretty close to yeah. the Coltrane album in terms of material. It does include another Coltrane song, Lonnie's Lament, from a, another session, but it's it's mostly more or less within that repertoire pretty tightly. Here, this album sprawls a bit more. It includes much of the Complete Communion Suite. It also includes some material that Varner's written that I think is quite good and compelling. And so it's more about 
not only the material from that album, but also just that sense of ensemble interplay, and I guess that sense of communion, with his own group, which at various times will include electric guitar, there's some guitar there, there's trumpet occasionally, Tony Mabley. Malaby. Malaby, thank you. You (laughs) Luckily, I can edit some of this out at least. Just say the letters as they appear. (laughs) I mean, do I remember them? You know what a great great speller I am? I I can't remember. I know there's an Malaby, but it could be Malaby, but I'm going to guess it's Malaby. What's your Malaby, (laughs) Mabley? Fine tenor player that I've heard in a couple contexts. He's, I'd say, more or less in the avant garde camp, but not somebody who's purely in energy, certainly not somebody who's purely into sound. He's, He's got, he can create some, I think, compelling lines and he includes a lot of material from the suite some other material over a sprawling record that i run 60 70 minutes i'd say so what did you think of this project especially having gone back to cherry and listened to that i liked it one of the first things i liked about it was that he broke up the numbers of the suite so i could kind of listen to the i I like that i I think it makes perfect sense to do that and his doing it here is fine to me so i enjoyed that i really like the guitarist on this holy cats I really like him, and I, for the longest time, thought that's got to be our favorite guy, the nerdiest white man alive. Uh, Not one of us? Okay. Bill, Bill Frizzell. For oh, yeah. Time, <laughs> for the longest time, I thought, this is Bill Frizzell, and I looked it up, and I was like, oh, my God, who the hell is this guy? I really liked him. Pete uh, McCann. Pete McCann. Yeah. yeah. And I, of course, like you, am a huge Bill Frizzell fan, so this guy sounded like Frizzell to me uh, an awful lot. So anyway, I really, I really like the guitar playing here. I like the cornet as well. I thought that was a very nice, uh, nice touch. Didn't, didn't dislike Malaby's tenor sax playing. It just wasn't. Maybe it reminded me a little too much of Gato. <laughs> I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. I just, I, I wasn't as fond of, 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 of his work on this. I, I enjoyed the, uh, I really enjoyed the interplay between Varner and the guitarist. I, that for me was the highlight of cut after cut. I thought. Those those bits were really good. I also wholly endorse his decision to put Cherry Co. on the album. Cherry Co. is a cut from Don Cherry's Avant Garde. We talked right, about that earlier. Right, with Coltrane, with, yeah. With Coltrane. And the treatment it gets here is really good. In some ways, more appealing than what Coltrane gets up to <laughs> yes. on the Don Cherry album, which is to say, if you just if Coltrane is always at like an eleven on the intensity scale, then if you dialed him back to a seven. That would have been really good with Don go. Cherry. And since since Malaby is, by virtue of just not being John Coltrane, is kind of at a seven, the, the Cherry Coat cut kind of worked for me here. I, I thought that was pretty cool. I like this. I really feel like I need to have a better handle on the Don Cherry album before I can sort of pass some sort of final verdict or judgment on this. In a way, I'm kind of reacting to it on its own merits less than as a sort of revisitation of the dialogue that Don Cherry got up to on his album. And on its own merits, this is very good indeed. I really enjoy it. And, you know, it's not strictly speaking a cover album. Really, it's almost kind of a tribute because they do complete communion and then they throw in a a couple of other numbers and then, as you said, an original as well. So that's a pretty good way to do a a cover album, if you ask me. You know, if you're going to do, if you're going to do Kind of Blue, by God, don't just do the six cuts. Do four or five cuts and then do something else from late miles and throw in an original and, and see how that sounds. It strikes me that that's a kind of inspired way of organizing the album here. That that makes a lot of sense to me. And I enjoyed I enjoyed that. And in a way, it helped me maybe enjoy the album on its own merits even more, if that makes sense. Yeah, it is. It's less dependent on the idea of revisiting or reimagining a particular record. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's informed by the spirit of and includes material from, but it's not as committed to, 
as we will in our final example here, uh, really going over the ground that the particular album covered. Yeah, I liked it a lot. I was just thinking Coltrane of the Avant Garde's kind of like, oh, Dad's at the party. Okay, we're still having fun. Good to see you, Dad. <laughs> Yeah, have a beer. We're going to get crazy tonight. I just, it just, sorry, just this image of, I'm glad you kids are having a good time. I'll have a beer, yeah. She doesn't quite fit in. And yeah, there is a, there's a comfort level here. Yeah, Tony, the man whose name I cannot say, yeah, I, I've listened to a couple of his things. I guess I've never quite gotten him as a player. He, I think he does fine here. Yeah. But I, I would agree that in terms of the excitement level going up, it's more about Varner and the guitarist. And I, and I think Matt Wilson, the drummer, oh, yeah, who, yeah, who's I'm been sure a very so. active player and I guess has been compared to Blackwell in his career, yeah. I don't, you know, I'm not somebody who is as focused on drummers as I should be probably and come from a melody instrument background and tend to kind of prioritize that in a way that I probably shouldn't listening, at least at first. But his playing is a lot of fun here. He's known as a drummer who has a sense of humor and likes to have fun. And that, that role seemed to work fine here. Varner, certainly, I, the long piece that he includes of his own composition that runs in like 16 minutes, Don's Big View, I think, is is fine. And he does a couple others, Watts 56 and Leaving Malaga that are in Don's Ham. So he, he includes several of his own pieces there. A little, a little Elephantasy uh, is the second side of Complete Communion. He does a brief version of that, but he's willing to kind of stretch and bend things. He's not tying himself down to the format. And I think it's a very successful record. I don't know that it teaches us much about Complete Communion, but it does celebrate his love for that music. There is apparently another version of Complete Communion, Ken Vandermark Live. God, Can you, you know, imagine? I just, I, I just saw. I just you know, in looking looking at this, I just saw that. And um, well, I'm a big fan of the Skronk and and Ken Vandermark, someone we've actually seen together. Oh yeah, uh, on one of our few jazz outings together. And I think that would be just a hell of a lot of fun. I have a feeling it, it's uh, irreverent and uh, and it will definitely be out. I, oh I yeah. Can't see, I can't see Vandermark uh, doing anything in the way of something strictly faithful. So it ought to be damn interesting. He is the uh, Agent Orange of tenor players. You know, no vegetation will be left when I'm done, you know? <laughs> yeah. Kind of, yeah, there are many times of, of a morning that I'm not ready to see Ken's smiling face and rock-hard embouchure. But yeah. <laughs> That's not uh, a dirtier a... than it really was meant to be. But yeah, yeah he's... he's... <laughs> He is a high energy guy, and I'm a low energy guy. But yeah, I have I, not looked this up. I don't know what how easily it is to track down at all. Vandermark's got an immense uh, recorded legacy. I think his and, goal uh, is to uh, out record John Zorn before he's all it's done. It's possible. It's amazing. <laughs> and I've got dueling, mixed feelings yeah. about that. But but anyway, there is so another version of this which fascinated me because I don't think of it even in Cherry's career, which is this kind of fragmented, marginal, unusual safari in a sense through the decades of just occasionally an album will flitter out here and album will flitter out there. He's never seemed very uh, rigorous about producing things during his lifetime. Even there, I don't know that this is a particularly famous work. I mean, it's his first blue note album. Maybe it's his best known. I, as I said, I think I think symphony for improvisers is a little bit stronger, but they're both quite good. But yeah, it's just kind of a neat record. It, it's a neat introduction to Tom Varner. If you know, Cherry, don't know Tom, this might be a place to, to meet him. He's got a strange project going, but he does amazing things. It, it just, what he's able to make that instrument do is jaw-dropping. I just, at the end of the day, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to think about it. I mean, the French hornness to some degree has disappeared. And, 
why not flugelhorn? Why not trombone? I don't know, but it is yeah. amazing what he does. And I think that whatever you think of him, his choice of instruments as a conceptualist, as a composer, as someone who's put together some really interesting projects, I think mainly on the Omnitone label. And I don't know whether he's recently released much. It may be that he's kind of yeah, uh, quieted that. down there, but I, it's strong stuff. It, it's a lot yeah. of fun. He's definitely worth looking up. This is not a novelty. This is not somebody nope. who is you know, doing this. And if you're looking for something by him where uh, he plays pretty, because I'm, I'm looking at his discography and I realize I have a lot more of this stuff than I would have thought. I don't have the early stuff, but I have Mystery of Compassion, Martian Headache, Second Communion, and Window Up Above. Right, and yeah. of the four of those, Window Up Above, he actually plays pretty because uh, in part he's doing a lot of um, uh, folk songs from uh, you know the American not Very. songbook just and. So there's more legato. There's more very uh, Bill Frizzell there, right? Yeah, kind of very Frizzell, Bill Frizzell. Yeah. Yeah. project. So yeah. th- there's there's uh, there's I don't want to say prettier playing, but there's more ballad like playing on that, and more he, he well he he just plays prettier on that album. Maybe that's just the way to put it. It's he doesn't sound as much like a trombone there. I think so. so. A neat artist worth looking up. Um, Absolutely. So we're going to end with an act of unspeakable blasphemy that I want to admit right now I really enjoy. And that is, <laughs> I feel terrible about this, but I this like is it. Important. This is hard for us to do because we both we both have mixed strongly mixed feelings about Wynton Marsalis for all kinds of excellent reasons. Right. The first one being Stanley Crouch and then the second one being Stanley Crouch. <laughs> and then, you know, on to all, all kinds of other reasons. But uh, yeah, Winton is a, Winton, love him, hate him, Titanic, important player, perhaps not as Titanic as an, or as important as, as he or some of his defenders would have him to be. But oh, the yeah. history of 20th century, early 21st century jazz will, will have to grapple with Winton and and his agendas in order to say anything meaningful about the music. As a kid in the early 80s in jazz band, the director would whisper, there is this this new person upon the horizon and yo, he shall heal all your wounds and make all whole. He can he can play anything at any speed and he is he is the Winton. And those records started coming out with this massive promotional push. I mean my parents knew who Winton was. He's doing classical for a while, he's doing jazz. It's the early eighties where he emerges as this juggernaut for quite a while of the jazz hope, the jazz player. And so it's right in a sense in my teenage years where he emerges as, you know, he's, he's got to be maybe a few years older than us, but barely yeah. um, as his great player. And so what he decides to do, many things that he decides to do and his brother Brandon decided to do are mysterious to me, but it occurs to him at some point that the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra, which he's been, I don't know if he still leads it, but he was early on a director of the Lincoln Center Jazz I, Program. I think he's still the executive director at okay. some level. He's, he's involved. He's, he's permanently, he's yeah. He shall always be. And he decides he's going to create an arrangement of John Coltrane's A Love Supreme. Blasphemy! Burn the unbeliever! Uh, Yeah, which, you know, and uh, so here's a question. I'm going to ask you a few uh, 
questions here as if a psychological test, as if I was showing you some blots. Oh, okay. You have, you're on a plane again. The plane is a couple ounces overweight. You must get rid of one thing. <laughs> is it Giant Steps? Is it Love Supreme? If you had to give one of those up. Oh, man. That's brutal. I get rid of Giant Steps. I get rid of Love Supreme. I'm sorry. I know. I, know. I could have predicted that. I know. Frisky, I get rid of it's gone. And I, and I will say I went again and went back to this and I, you know, got this fancy high-res version, which for some reason has now disappeared from HD tracks. I don't know. Maybe if you played it backwards, it said things about Satan. But it's a 33-minute record, one of the famous jazz masterpieces of all time. It is this kind of sweet four movements. And I cranked that sucker up and listened to it. And I did recognize, you know, there's that opening bit. And then the group comes in and... Elvin starts playing and there is a float. There is a sense of time suspended. There is a sense of just perfect unity between them and this beautiful motion forward. It's a neat album to me. I I think I've told you this horrible, shameful secret before that if I had to choose between this and maybe my favorite tracks by the Jerry Mulligan, Chet Baker quartet, I still might throw it away. (laughs) Which is just another way of saying you are a very white I am a <laughs> pale person, you know. You're an extremely white I, man. I, I, and, I was, and, of course, there is no question that the Love Supreme group is, is the, uh, I think, quartet that he had, that he had a symbiosis going with Elvin Jones and with McCoy Tyner that he did not necessarily have with the musicians on Giant Steps. But I look at that list of songs and, the, I mean, of the melodies that, that, that Coltrane created in his lifetime, 70% of the best stuff he ever did is on that record. It's just amazing. Every song became a standard. And I don't feel at that moment, I think I've talked before about when you listen to Giant Steps, the most striking thing about his playing is the ease, that he has mastered these difficult changes so thoroughly that not only can he play them at this blistering speed, yeah. but he can do so with complete control. There is a kind of relaxation about what he's doing that very shortly he just almost never recaptures again. I Again, I, I the, the image of a quest, the image that this avant-garde journey was something he had to go on as if the boy out to slay the dragon, and that it was a duty almost as much as a pleasure for him. That, that in a sense, I don't know, I mean, not his heart was in it 110%, but I don't know that aesthetically it was a nourishing environment for him to the degree that the old hard bop and post bop and even modal jazz had been, you know, I just feel like there is a sense of effort of strain. Now this is not true of a love Supreme. I mean, he's, there's a beautiful kind of piece to it and, 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 and sense to it. To me, it's just, it is more purely modal. There is a certain simplicity that's both awe inspiring. And at times for me, tiring. There are times I'm like, yeah, that last prayer you do that supposedly every word of the prayer on the inner gatefold matches to a note that you play and it's all, and if you put it on on a black light, you can see the Wizard of Oz makes more sense. You know, it, it it's both beautiful and serene and a little repetitive for me. It's an amazing masterpiece, but, but never been in that stack of, you know, the handful of great jazz masterpieces, the top of what I was likely to pull out. So, hmm. if I'm on that plane, I'm sorry. You're gonna throw out a Love Supreme. No, I'd hang on to Love Supreme. I, I feel like they're I feel like they're the religious impulses of Coltrane, the the questing nature kind of finds its happiest medium with the playing. That there's a yeah. that they're that the quest is in balance with the music, that the striving and the playing are all kind of of a piece, that 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 there's a sense that he's home, he's got it, this makes sense. That some of the later playing feels like 
he's starting up the questions again or he's you know he's engaged in the quest again this feels like he's kind of reached a kind of resolution he sort of reached a kind of point a summit where he kind of survey and can look out and survey kind of just how far he's come given the nature of the kind of player he was it was inevitable that he would see himself not as at the top of the mountain but as merely at a way station and that there was much further to go and 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 so this album feels like he's kind of got to a place where he can take stock and and take measure of 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 his achievement at the same time that he's actually creating the achievement which kind of that's for me what kind of makes a love supreme so amazing it's both a stock taking at the same time that it is itself the the achievement of which it is taking stock it's almost as if he's looking at himself and being content with himself even as he lays down on these tracks here's where we've got to this is what I've done. And like I said, it's just a temporary way station. He's on his way after this. He's This is just a step along the way. And in, in the journey that is tightly, it's easy to forget that he dies as a fairly young man and that yeah. his really intense recording in, in terms of as a leader is in a very short space of that short lifespan. I mean, it, yeah. it really is a compressed movement even the great quartet is only together for a few years i mean i think you're absolutely right to me that you know spirituality and jazz chocolate and peanut butter i've got a little bit of a peanut allergy so this is a perfect blend but i'm still the religious aspect of it less appealing but it is it's an amazing record and there is as i said i think i'd forgotten the kind of the bliss reaction you get the endorphins flooding when elvin jones starts in on that ride symbol in the first movement it's like oh yeah Oh, wow, this is so... And there are moments marbled throughout this record that are like that. Yep. The bass solo is not one of them. <laughs> God only wishes it was Ron Carter in there, though. I, you know, I, it, uh, I, nothing against Mr. Garrison. I think he does fine, except when they let him solo. There's a live version of this, uh, maybe the only live version of the complete suite, and I literally put the whole thing into an audio editor and clipped out the 12 to 50, it seems like. It, it may have been it may have only been eight, but some epic, endless bass solo. And that's a voice I've never, I just cannot, I, I love him. I'm so glad he did what he did for the quartet. But when he starts soloing, I just, wow. Not a whole lot of that here, but I, I just don't find him a very interesting soloist at all. But there's a little bit of that in, in the studio version, but it's a 33-minute piece. It is, it is a very compact album, even by old album standards. I mean, this is not a long record and that may help add to the force of it. That that it's, you can take it all in and once Mm -hmm. you you haven't forgotten the beginning by the time you've got to the ending and it makes that unity all the stronger, but it is one, I think for a lot of people, it may be the album for them or the greatest, certainly the greatest Coltrane album, maybe the greatest jazz album, maybe the only jazz album or one of a handful they even like. It's a very special place for a lot of people. And Coltrane was kind of a, Hard as it is to believe, a bit of a crossover artist. Sort of the big draw, yeah. the economic engine of Impulse Records. Yep. And uh, I think, in a sense, that interest in modes and the harmonic simplicity of the foundation of what he was doing, not the variations, but the basic orientation of we're on one chord, we're on another chord, we're back to the first chord, we're on to the other chord. You know, that, 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 I think, helped along with just the incredible rhythmic thrust and, again, the extreme earnestness the, the yeah. unity of him, make him accessible to a wider group of people. I mean, even the, I've, I've talked with you before about the Village Vanguard recordings, how there's almost at times a rock energy to them. 
you know, there's kind of a, it's a little different feel to them than, than jazz, as you think of as being a very horizontally motivated music that's kind of, you know, the walking bass, the, the through flow, and that having a little bit more of that vertical thumping rock energy to it. Yeah, this album, I think for a lot of people, is a very special record. It's, it's a special record to me. It's not as high in that pantheon as maybe it should be if I was a better person, but it, it's up there. And well, when you think when you think about albums that uh, jazz albums that even non-jazz people have in their collections, right? You're gonna have back in the day you would have had Brubeck's Time Out. Thank you. God, I almost said Take Five. We're gonna have Brubeck's Time Out. You're gonna have almost certainly Kind of Blue, right? Sure. Yeah. So those are the two that you're gonna have. The third album, if they have it, it's gonna be Love Supreme. That's it's like the, the holy trinity of the non-jazz. The non-jazz fans' jazz collection will have those albums. They'll—they're just—you gotta have them. You a know? decade later, they had Heavy Weather. Mike's got several copies in case one gets crashed. <laughs> he goes replace it with another. But yeah, it, but, yeah, but seriously, yeah. I mean, they were the, is, they're, yeah. they're, they're, non-jazz people know this album. Absolutely, they know Kind of Blue. They know uh, Brubeck. And yeah, it's it's it has that just amazing kind of crossover appeal, which is interesting because of the three if you could call them that, the, the holy trinity of jazz albums people have, by God, it's the least accessible by far. Kind of Blue is much more user-friendly. And yeah. Christ, you know, Brubeck, even for all the time changes, Jesus, that's a really, really appealing, oh, yeah. hey, we love you, love us back album. You know, Love Supreme is this uncompromising religious statement. It's not the first thing you'd pick out to say, hey... That's something I want in my record collection right next to my Eric Clapton, you know, my, right. my complete Doors collection. But maybe you know? not that far from the Pink Floyd. I mean, there is. That's, that's right. Uh, of course, I'm thinking more of early 70s Floyd, but there is a sense of. And again, I don't. Coltrane's an amazing musician. I, we all know this. I mean, he's an amazing technician. He's an amazing harmonic theorist. But especially at the Love Supreme moment, he's using fairly simple melodic yeah. building blocks in what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And the variations he's doing are based on pretty simple building blocks in a way that the only Pink Floyd album I find myself listening to much in the last three decades or so has been Wish You Were Here. And listening to that again after a break of maybe 10 years, it was struck me how very simple the music on that album is. Mm-hmm. Or really, most of Pink Floyd is a very simple band in some ways, and maybe in ways that aren't all that good. But, but you know, they are building quote-unquote epic structures out of very basic building blocks very basic motifs and he's doing that now i'm not going to pretend that coltrane could not eat digest and shit all those musicians for breakfast my god i'm not even don't ever mistake this for a comparison about their musical talents good lord no but this album is made up of fairly a love supreme yeah. Ba 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 I mean, my lord, that is in a sense the beating heart of this piece. Of the whole uh, album. A it very comes up, simple that motif. motif. Yeah, it's you know, everywhere. And it, 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 it doesn't take long and maybe that maybe it was the lyrics, right? You know, people hey finally a jazz album with some lyrics on it. What are they? <laughs> a love supreme. Bitch. You know, that's all I think I can get that. You know, uh, turn on the, the mood lamp, we're ready to go. It is a very basic set of building blocks and motifs there, even though it's abstract. You know, it's not you're not going to be humming the melodies here. This is not top 40 pop, God knows. This is not the very hummable melodies of a Brubeck or, you know, the, the grooves of a kind of blue that there are certain little melodic bits there that are very easy to hang on to, even if I still couldn't tell you what the melody of, uh, what was it? With this, this, it's not a, the Spanish song. What do they call it? Um, Concierto de Aranjuez. No, 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 no. I'm thinking of kind of blue. Um, 
what is it? Something sketches, or I, I can't remember the name, but flamenco sketches. Flamenco Good Lord, sketches, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, we're there. It's it, it is almost pure mood with no melody. But but yeah, it, it's it's an accessible I, I, album I, in that yeah. sense. Yeah. I, I have a confession to make about this album for the podcast. I have done something that I have never done before for the podcast in our many years of doing the podcast now, in our <laughs> in our in our decades of podcasting, which is. I've been talking about this album, but I did not listen to it again this week. Ooh, and the reason being, the reason being, Love Supreme is so much a part of my musical interior landscape. It is so much a part of my DNA that I can think, I can call it up, right. you know, at will. I don't, I don't need to, I, I didn't need to hear this again the way I needed to hear Complete Communion uh, or Interstellar Space and then listen to the cuts one against each other. Well, sure, yeah. I just, uh, in part, that's because what uh, Marsalis is up to is an arrangement that's not very far, in some ways, from what's going on here. But this music is just such a part of of my musical DNA. You know, there's only a hand. We talked about this before. There's a certain moment where you've listened to an album enough times where it just clicks for you, and and your appreciation of it sort of escalates a level or two and you hear things in it that you didn't hear before and it and it's sort of endlessly rewarding on on newer levels and and it's it's this this intense sort of interior it becomes intensely interior for you and there's a handful of uh, uh classical albums that this has happened to me for and there's a handful of jazz albums and this is one of them and i just i didn't need to listen to it again this week i i i listened to it with regularity, but I didn't need to hear it again this week uh, since I figured I could just listen to Winton. There you and go. You, you probably have a handful of albums too that you just are so you're just so clicked onto that. I mean, for me, it's your fault. Uh, I think the first jazz music you ever gave me was Ornette Coleman's "This Is Our Music." And as a B-side, you bastard, you put on World Saxophone Quartet WSQ. <laughs> and but those two albums are like just. DNA for me, you know. I mean, when I hear them, I'm like humming along immediately. No one hums along with this is our music, but I do, and it's your fault. Uh, Into the deep end with you. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. We Sink can do the swim. easier stuff later. Yeah, um, that's, right. that's interesting. Here. Yeah, and no, that's it, how I feel about Love Supreme. It's just that as you can pick it up anywhere and go, oh yeah, and you just start humming along. You know, oh I mean, yeah, you hum I'm, along to it. How many jazz albums do you right. hum along to? And you know? for me, I guess it had been long enough that I'd sat down, and listened to it, and again, I. I think that 97% of this is psychological. I, I don't know that I could identify the difference, but certainly the the high-res version they were selling and stopped selling did sound excellent. Mm. It did, and I guess in a sense, it's like, okay, I spent 20 bucks on this again. Um, <laughs> having done so, I should really sit down, and so much of you know music is, is it's about the, just like listening to LPs. I mean, in a sense, you've committed yourself. You know you have to get off the chair again in 15 minutes. You know if you leave it alone, the needle's going to run it. it. It makes you focus on the music in a way that is separate from the media. I mean, it's not the media being better. It, it's that you've made a commitment that you don't make if you're running something through an MP3 player. And so having made that commitment, you tend to give back more and get more back from the music because you're all of a sudden giving it a lot more focus than you would if it was just kind of humming in the background. And I'm glad I listened to A Love Supreme that way, gave it some living room time because it's, it's always there. It's always deeply familiar. But at the same time, as I said, my memory had dimmed enough that I'd forgotten and maybe never quite realized that that amazing float, that amazing mm-hmm. sense of this perfect uh complete communion as it were between the musicians and the the transcendence of the earthboundness that i think sometimes haunts him 
So we're moving on to Wenton Marsalis, a very divisive figure. We like to divide him all the time ourselves and pull him to pieces. And this is a very idiosyncratic project, even for him. I mean, it seems like at this point he's done everything but a concept album on the Amoeba. And I may have just missed that one, right? You know, he's he's done everything, ballets, and, you know, it, it's it's been all over the map. He's done monk tunes and, and, and of the strings and, you know. Uh-huh. I have listened to way more Wynton Marsalis than you have. I, I think I have 20 albums. I just him. bet you have. Yes. <laughs> and you dip into uh, Uncle Wynton just when you feel like it or when the podcast moves you. But Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I was like engaged with, with the big W on uh, many occasions. I've, I went through a Wynton phase. Now, it was a weird phase. It wasn't a Wynton. I must listen to all of this because he's just so wonderful. He makes me feel good about myself. And it was just like, I wanted to know, like, what is, what is the, what is the point? What is the, what is all the noise about? So yeah, I, I got deep into Winton for a while. Uh, and I'm still, you know, the jury's still out and I, I, keep coming back i do have this massive set of vanguard recordings he released uh, seven discs yeah I, i've got i went back and got the blues alley cd to cut out somewhere because i think basically i'd grown up with that and it's a good i like that date a lot it's it is a lot. it is i mean you know whatever we say and we love to to give the guy trouble and he doesn't give a damn he's an amazing player he's an amazing he technician and i think there's certainly moments of greatness there i there there's also a lot of for me personally frustration with a lot of the things he does and the choices he makes in this case he made the choice to create an arrangement of a love supreme for a big band the lincoln center band and kind of i don't know if you call this an ellingtonization of it i mean he's kind of i feel like he he began with miles and kind of drifted backwards toyed with jelly roll morton but seems to have settled into kind of a young Ellington mode in the last 10 or 15 years, which there are worse things things to to do in your spare time. He wasn't going to get into Don Cherry. Uh, He's the anti Don Cherry retentive where Cherry is kind of easygoing, highly trained where Cherry was folksy. And as I said, my shameful secret is whenever I put this recording on, which I know is a naughty, naughty blasphemous thing. I like it. I I kind of enjoy this record. I I find it fun. I just find it pleasing to listen to. I don't know if I sat down and bored down into it with analysis. I might get to the bottom of it and start to feel like it's frustratingly inadequate somewhere, but I think the solos actually are quite well done. You got to give some serious props here to Wessel, warm daddy Anderson. Yeah. Because Warm Daddy, these are big fucking shoes to fill. You're going to play tenor on a rearrangement of Love Supreme. You better bring the big boy shoes. And uh, holy shit, he's well, good on this. As an alto player. But I, oh, he's an alto player. I, I, I think of a, him as being, I, I could be wrong. Player. But, but there are, there is, there's fantastic. Uh, Wessel, brings, Wessel brings the heat. He's good. I'm looking him but, up now. But I can't never believe. in, I think none of them. What we don't have are soloists in the Coltrane idiom. None of them are trying to do, and I read somewhere something recently that just, uh, my jaw was on the floor, something talking about, well, Coltrane was not that influential on other players. He was just, I thought, what the, f-? I mean, if what n- world, yeah. never have is any player in jazz history, aside from Parker for a few years, but I mean, Coltrane, this went on for decades, become the model. Oh, for, yeah. for modernist jazz saxophone players the way Coltrane did. It was just, I mean, if you look at Michael Brecker, who supposedly yeah. was a model for others, and I'm like, well, what were they modeling? Did they just listen to Coltrane first? Now, once I finally heard him with the Brecker brothers, I realized, okay, he kind of created the Saturday Night Live style. Yeah. But but in his more quote-unquote jazz projects, he sounds like Coltrane. I mean, I'm sorry. That's what he, and so many players, 
to some degree, uh, Lloyd, what's his name? Uh, Charles Lloyd. You Charles know, Lloyd, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of, he's he's been playing off the mellower side of Coltrane for 40 years. It, it an amazingly influential player, but that modal, scalar, pattern-oriented, arpeggiated style, I think largely a baneful influence, but a huge influence. You know, David Liebman, who, of course, grew out of that. Yeah. Uh, so many players uh, drank from that well. And because, in a sense, it seems like the, the way this band works is in more of that Ellington mode, these players are not trying to reproduce that. They're playing, I think, really fun, successful, melodically impressive solos at, you know, short solos. They don't tend to be yes. epic statements, which, again, maybe is a good thing, uh, especially because none of them are Coltrane. But, you know, I think they sound great. There is a bluesier idiom. It's it's a more old-style jazz idiom. There's some trumpet yeah. growling occasionally. One section, you know, when the Love Supreme repetition comes in, he literally has every instrument in the orchestra play the motif batting around the stereo field the trumpet the trombone the what all right I, but i gotta yeah. this is and I, I hate to i hate it when i agree with all music's reviews i really hate it but i agree with what they said about this to a certain degree when they bat the solos around i like it i do agree with the all music review says that's it, it turns it into comedy and that's absolutely true some of the time and it's winton who does it Unless there's another trumpet player on here, I hate, I absolutely hate when Winton mutes on the Love Supreme thing when they're batting it around. So you get, you know, Anderson, da, 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 and then you get Marsalis with the muting. And it just, yeah. it trivializes it in a way that bugs the shit out of me. I really hate the mute work on this album. I mean, with a, with a burning white hot passion. <laughs> Okay. Just okay. I mean, so I understand. I mean, I sort of get it, right? I get okay. So there, it's it's cute, it's clever, right? And I love how they bat the the theme around, you know. And then, but then I sort of am surprised that they go ahead and do the vocalization. I love Supreme. I was a little surprised they went there. But batting the theme around between the different musicians, cool, fine. Just I, I hate ma- making a comedy out of it. I mean, it just seems sacrilegious in a way. I get, I get, I sort of get that you're sort of taking some of the intensity out of it. In a way, wasn't the whole fucking point of what Coltrane got up to? So to me, it feels like I'm going to sound like some sort of crotchety old man on my porch with a cane yelling at the kids to get off his lawn. But that really irritates me. It, it kind of trivializes or makes comic something that for Coltrane was a hard-won moment of enlightenment or achievement, if you will. Sure. And it, yeah. it feels... Even if it's not intended to be, it feels trivializing. And I'm picking on just one thing, and I'm just—it's yeah. just the mute work on that moment, and it just bugs the hell out of me. And it, it goes around a few times, and and went and puts in different mutes. Maybe it's somebody else, but I, I, think, I think it's. I, I would be surprised. Winton. You know, when they, and strangely, I don't know how often this comparison is made, but in certain ways, if I was going to think of an earlier generation of trumpet player, it'd be Clark Terry. There is that. Maybe Clark Terry light sometimes. Yeah, I agree that Wenton kind of overdoes the puckish a bit in his playing. Uh, there yes. is a kind of lightness to it. This whole record is many, many, many degrees lighter in tone. Yes, yes. And, it, it and I, just, I, don't yeah. Want, yeah. I don't want to make it sound like I dislike the album. I'm with you. I find it surprisingly enjoyable. I like it. I do like it. It's not anywhere near as intense as Coltrane's version, and, and that's fine. It does feel like an intentionally brighter a uh, happier iteration of the basic building blocks of what what Coltrane is getting up to, and I guess finally you have to ask yourself: Are you okay with that? 
and most of the time on this album, I am. I, I do enjoy it, in part because when you hear – we talked about a few weeks ago when we talked about Enrico Rava. Remember that? Right, uh, yes. And doing the Michael Jackson covers and yes. – with that band that sounded like a high school band, and we both really <laughs> hated that. And the danger when you sort of Ellingtonize or rearrange something like a Love Supreme is that you can sound like the high school marching band, right? Except that these guys are awesome, and they never sound like that. They sound no, no, no. I mean, the writing is wonderful. I mean, the arrangements are really well done. In that idiom that that it, it and it's not pure Ellington. I mean, there right, is it's it's, it's it's but. It's an idiom. When we say Ellington, what we mean is that the winds play together, the horns play together. There's a kind of unity and balance between the, the, the various sections of the quote-unquote orchestra and that there's this kind of deliberate interplay, counterplay between them that smacks of Ellington. That, that was sort right. of what Ellington was a master of. And, and this is arranged that way. Strayhorn and maybe right, some of the horn. really more extreme um, – pointillistic tossing back and forth the motifs between instruments and kaleidoscope uh, work on things like, you know, the Beatles tunes that I keep returning to. I, I think Strayhammer was especially gifted at that. Yeah. And also I think in the, in the kinds of solos in that they are fairly brief. They are yeah. harmonically of an earlier era. They use more of those Ellingtonian effects of growls and smears and humor. It is, yeah, this is a band that is, playing in this this idiom that is very old but they're very comfortable in it they, they've been doing this a lot and this music is surprisingly the simplicity of the motifs the the basic building blocks coltrane is using lend themselves beautifully to this yeah. kind of arranging it it you know if you're going to say love supreme over and over again why not fling it between 10 different horns it, the variety is then added into what was a more monolithic and more serious and more spiritual thing and and you get a whole different feeling and vibe from it but it works i mean it, it again the, so many you can't imagine a big band treatment in, in this idiom or any other idiom of so many jazz master works coming off at all well whereas right. this it just seems to fit very naturally and there is it is i think they there's a reverence there in the sense that clearly they love this music, but you're right. absolutely right. God has left the house. I mean, there is yep. no sense that this is somehow about, other than the pure religion of big band jazz and right. Clinton's ego and Ellingtonia, there's nothing here about spiritual striving. This is about, if it's exalting anything, it's the big band tradition. I mean, God is off the pedestal, Ellington's on it. And yeah, it's, and it's at, at, some level, is, you know, at some level, that diminishment saddens me. Only because one has the sense that, 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 that Coltrane is a serious guy interested in serious questions, and his music is the vehicle through which he attempts to answer those questions. For Marsalis, I don't get that sense. Oh, no. You know, no. This is a vehicle to buy him a second Mercedes or something. You know? Well, yeah, I, one, I don't know. probably the fourth. And, you know, I, but, but it, well, and, I don't... and I'm not saying that music has to be that way, no. but it feels like a diminishment to me. I would love to hear a take on, on Love Supreme by someone as questing as Coltrane, but maybe a little less fluid on their instrument. don't mean to go off on some sort of religious high horse here or anything. It just feels like that there's something slightly irreverent, and not in a way that I normally would value, about the approach to what Coltrane is getting up to here. That gets on my nerves just a little bit. Having said that, like I said, this qualifies for me as a guilty pleasures disc. So absolutely, yeah, it is. And I think that if they tried to 
add spiritual freight to it, they would have failed horribly. Exactly, exactly. So in a way, you have to kind of... You know, you I was thinking... To, you have to, you know, have your own take on it. Right. You know? And if you want, I was just thinking, for some reason, the album that popped into my head, if you're looking for that kind of high to some degree, but in a slightly more modern idiom, Ask the Ages by Sonny Sherrock. Now, that's an yeah. album that... I'm just like, it does give you that sense of kind of spiritual questing, and it is just like, it's a real trip, and you're like, man, it. there are records out there like that, but to do that with a Love Supreme, to try to reproduce that ecstasy and that intensity, uh, it's hard to imagine who could pull it off. Certainly, the great thing I think about this record is it does not even pretend to try. It right. just, it has fun, it treats it as kind of a fun storehouse of motifs and structure, I think the album's a little bit longer. It's 40-something minutes, so it's not yeah. quite as tightly wound as, as the original. And it it is, I think, it's, it's a lot of fun. And it, just my sense is that if it's on, I'm happy. You know, it, 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 yeah. I'm always surprised by how pleasant I find it to listen to. It might not stand up under microscopic scrutiny, but I do think that something about this combination brought out some really uh, good expressions and really good solos and it, maybe again it was the freedom in a sense of this idiom the Ellingtonian idiom the old-fashioned quote-unquote idiom juxtaposed with a love supreme that somehow gave it a little extra tension or spice that that inspired some of the musicians to greater heights than they might have reached if they were just covering an Ellington song and yeah. they didn't have the shadow of Coltrane over them they didn't also have the freedom from that shadow provided by saying I'm going to be as much about Bubber Miley as I am, and that's probably a bad example because what I think is right, <laughs> I prefer Warm Daddy Anderson to what he's doing, to what uh, Mar- Marcellus is doing. But somehow it, is, it just seems like it, it bore fruit, and it is the, the proof's in the pudding, and this recipe sounds like shit, let's face it. My God, you know, cover a big band cover of A Love Supreme. What were you smoking? This is terrible. This is, but at the end of the day, it is a good guilty pleasure. So, which yeah. is which is a nice way of summing up maybe just general reactions to Winton and his career. <laughs> it's just a kind of smugness and a kind of promotional machine that accompanies him that just makes you want to see him fall flat on his face. And the fact is, he's a really good player. And while he may not live up to all of the hype that has accrued around him, by God, the man can do some arrangements. Sure. And, and, and he can play. And by golly, it may get on your nerves, but this is enjoyable it's enjoyable you know even if the premise sounds like just a in fucking bad idea from the get-go it turns out to be quite enjoyable we could have and we toyed with taking up another album jazz album which has a sort of very sort of religious set of overtones albert eiler's spiritual unity in some ways maybe his greatest album and then mark ribot's version of that uh, Rebo is a guitarist and that might have been interesting to co- contemplate sort of juxtapose those two albums and 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 Rebo's or is it Ribbit I hope it's Rebo Ribbit, Ribbit. I don't know yeah <laughs> never asked me God it's spelled with a c so uh, that's why I'm thinking Mark Rebo that he's there you uh, go. French derivation anyway it might have been interesting to listen to those and talk about his responding to Eiler's equally questing intense religious vision in jazz but perhaps for another podcast and that concludes episode 14 of the jazz bastard podcast you can find our podcast at jazzbastard.com and of course on itunes please rate us if you download us from itunes you can contact us at pat at jazzbastard.com and mike at jazzbastard.com tune in next time when we discuss four male vocalists gregory porter kurt elling 
Kevin Mahogany and Mel Torme. Until then, take care.